This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Hello, good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to Ilham. We're delighted to present to you a live recording of BFM's Night School with Fort Ramat today titled Crisis Vulnerabilities. Ahmad Fort Ramat is a PhD candidate at the School of Modern Languages and Cultures, University of Nottingham, Malaysia campus. He co-hosts Night School and Digital Desires on BFM Radio and is a founding member of Project Dialogue, a platform for multicultural understanding among Malaysian youths. I'm just going to pass it over to Fuad to introduce everyone else now. Okay, enjoy. All right, thank you, Chitu. Thank you uh, also to friends at Ilham Gallery for uh, welcoming the show to the venue. It's a very, very interesting space. Uh, thank you also to all of you for taking the time this Saturday afternoon to join us for this discussion. As you all know, this is a, a live recording, so we'll all be heard potentially soon on radio. Uh, and the idea here is to uh, bring the show outside of the studio setting for a broader conversation, uh, more, more interaction on the things we talk about. And we have a very exciting panel uh, joining uh, us to do that with you today. Uh, let me just introduce everybody. First and foremost, I think everybody knows Sharad Kutten, a long-time uh, co-host of the show. In fact, the person who came up with the idea at first and uh, a regular voice on BFM Radio. Let's uh, welcome him. Oh, thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. Uh, Shuad uh, gives me too much credit. It was a collaborative effort in conceptualizing the show. That's been running for three years now. Four three, years. Four actually. years. Yeah. Is it? yeah. Four years. And, uh, next to Sharad is Professor Diana Leah Baranovic, psychologist at uh, University of Malaya. She's authored on various topics, uh, namely child psychology. It'll be interesting to get her perspective on the topic today and how those things tie to broader political questions. Last but not least, to my left is Professor Diana Wong, currently at New Era College in Kajang. University. Oh, New, yes, they just updated the status. New Era University in Kajang. A very interesting place with this rich cultural history, but uh, you're also established as a well-known sociologist, uh, coming from a German-trained background as well. So we have a really rich global perspective we're bringing to the topic today. So uh, let's welcome her to the panel as well. So uh, what we are interested to explore today are the intersections between basically politics and emotions. And uh, as we've just observed over the past three years, a lot of politics, whether it's local or global, have taken on increasingly very passionate registers, whether it's on social media or the increasing uh, rise of the right that's appealing to very, how would you say, base emotions, right? Fear, uh, shame, insecurities. And what we hope to explore today are the implications, the, the things that we should pay attention to when we look at uh, the landscape more broadly, but how it ties in as well to questions of emotional health, questions of how to understand our feelings amidst this complex circumstance, you know, circumstantial changes. But first things first, let's just uh, paint a picture of where we are and try to understand what crisis means in this current age, right? Because every generation has encountered crises before, right? World War I was a crisis period. Nobody at the, at the height of it could see an end to it, despite all the destruction. World War II as well, that led to nuclear disaster. Uh, but where are we today, like in, in light of history more broadly? Are things worsening or do you, do you sense that there's a different way of looking at it? Professor Diana Wong. You expect me to answer that? I know. Oh, help us, uh, <laughs> help us start thinking about it. questions. <laughs> yes. 
Oh, well, I think I'll have to appeal to Hannah Arendt and uh, what is being discussed in the name of Hannah Arendt. About three weeks ago, some of you may be aware, there was uh, the 10th Hannah Arendt conference at Bard College. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the title of that conference was The Crisis. Mm -hmm. The Crisis of what? The Crisis of Liberal Democracy. So maybe that's, let's start with approaching it that way. It's fairly limited, not a grand crisis. But I think it pretty much sums up the sense of crisis in the West, the sense of crisis in liberal democracies in the West, mm -hmm. with the kind of uh, phenomena that you were referring to, the populism, the evocation of fear, mm -hmm. of anger. Mm -hmm. And you see this in the phenomena of Trump, for example, but also Brexit, the rise of the right in Europe. But what was the tipping point? Because I remember the 90s, after the Cold War, people were celebrating, this is the liberal era, end of history. It's the end of history. Right? <laughs> so where do you locate the major change? Is it related to economic insecurities? How do you link the two between that moment of triumphant uh, celebrations of liberalism to now where we're casting doubts over it? Well, if you were following, and I started, for, I, I, I was in Germany till the mid-90s, and I returned to Malaysia beginning of the 2000s, and pretty much left developments in, in Europe out of my mind, focusing on what was happening in, in Asia, trying to understand my country. I started reading the German press again about two years ago. And I think if you, if you look at the, if you're trying to trace, track the timeline of the crisis and the crisis in liberal democracies, probably came to our attention in 2014 with the Greek crisis, the Greek financial crisis. But then after that, it just wouldn't stop. It was one major climactic event after the other. 2015, the Greek crisis. 2016, Brexit. Brexit. But prior to that, Nizza, the truck mowing down over 100 people in mm -hmm. France, the, mm -hmm. the slitting of the throat of the Catholic, of the mm -hmm. ancient Catholic mm -hmm. priest in front of ancient Catholic nuns, then Brexit. Uh, than uh, the French elections. The Syrian refugee crisis. Yeah. Of course, the summer of 2016, the refugee crisis, which was felt most in Central Europe and in particular in Germany. In that year, it was not just Syria, the Syrian crisis. It was the refugee crisis too cool. Almost a million people entered uh, Germany. The Schengen Agreement suspended. And then remember, Sharad, we still had the discussion just after Macron's victory, the fear of Le Pen gaining victory, coming to power in France. And when Macron won, we all heaved a sigh of relief and thought, you know, now that spectre is over. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't, because we then had Trump mm -hmm. in 2017. But not just Trump, we just had the German elections. And for the first time in the post-war period, you have a far-right party being the third largest party in Germany. Mm -hmm. Then you'd, we just had the Austrian elections, mm -hmm. and you have courts. Well, on the one hand, the youngest chancellor ever is only 31. That's quite remarkable. On the other hand, we're right likely to have a far-right government mm -hmm. in Austria. So it's been one after the other since without votes, mm -hmm. since mm -hmm. 2015. I want to move the question to uh, Diana Baranovich to uh, help us understand how 
questions of emotional health or mental health is tied to this issue because it's quite a leap. But you can already sense certain overtones, not just in the kind of rhetoric that comes out, a lot of quote-unquote irrational fears, right? The phrase keeps coming out in the news. But also people are diagnosing Trump now. Trump the psychopath. <laughs> you know, they're, they're attaching, there seems to be that connection being drawn between the sense that something's going on in us that's leading to all of this. So how do you draw the connection between all that Professor Diana Wong described and broader questions about feeling and sentiment? Okay. Wow. All right. Let me see if I can give you this in a succinct nutshell. Um, if you don't know, I am America, American from America, born and raised, but I have lived, worked, prayed, and played in Kuala Lumpur for the past 10 years. But nonetheless, I am very abreast with what's going on with American politics, etc. And I believe, Fawad, your original question you asked was something about liberalism, fear of... Uh, repeat that again, please. Fear of liberalism or liberalism? Oh, so the, the idea that uh, politics becoming more irrational, right? And liberalism, which prizes Correct. reason in the public right. sphere, which is right. supposed to kind of usher us out of the dark ages, seems to be faltering. Yeah. Correct. Okay, so... I'm not a historian, but psychologically, speaking from a psychological and sociological premise, and also being born and raised in America, and watched the pendulum swing, Democrat, Republican, Democrat, Republican, you know, sort of like at every eight-year cycle. I think what has brought it to this liberal crisis, and it is a crisis, they're all saying they're going to go howl at the moon on November 7th, which is the, the one-year anniversary of Trump being elected. And the reason Trump won was because, now, and I'm speaking more or less an Amer from an American perspective, is because America is not in good shape, my dears. It is... Trillions of dollars, and Trump is working toward straightening that out, but it's trillions of dollars in debt. It's being raped and exploited by illegal immigrants who feel they are entitled. And where the fear, now tying all this into what makes people afraid, as I see it, is that people are no longer being accountable for the self or being self-reliant. They're looking for systems to take care of themselves. They're looking for government handouts and things of that nature. But, you know, the days were slipping, again, in an American perspective, the days had begun slipping away where anybody was taking care of themselves or working to better themselves. One of the big issues in America is, well, gosh, we have to hire the illegals because they'll work for lower wages than the citizens. Well, get the citizens off of welfare and where they have to go to work, and then they will go to work. And it's also against the law in America to work for less than minimum wage, okay? So you're going to have to pay the Americans minimum wage as to where the illegals, which are usually Mexicans, okay, they may work for $3 an hour when minimum wage is $8 an hour. So, you know, you're going to have to pay fair wages, but that's the law in America. So the illegals 
go home, put the people who are on welfare to work, and that's, you know, self-reliance. Socialism didn't work in Russia. It didn't work in Germany. It didn't work in Cuba. It's not working in Venezuela, if you've been watching those news. Uh, some say it works in these itsy-bitsy countries like Norway and Denmark. Well, some of the smallest states in America are larger than Denmark or Norway, so you can't compare the two. But then also, Denmark has the highest suicide rate. So, I don't know, there's a lot of big missing links there. But um, y'all brought up Trump. I didn't. His policy is about making people accountable again, making people not having such entitlement issues. You're not entitled to illegally cross somebody's borders and live there. And then also some of them have illegally collected food stamps and welfare and things like that. And it's put America very, very much in debt, and that's what the whole Trump regime, or whatever it is you want to call it, that's where the movement is, is to get back to law in the Constitution, there's nothing against immigrants. My father was an immigrant from Czechoslovakia. However, he came there legally, okay? And there was no hand, I mean, this was way back in the 1930s. There were no handouts involved with that. It was go and live the American dream, yeah, but that takes work. It's not about handouts or entitlements. And then when people talk about privilege, you know, some people like to talk about the white privilege in America. Well, we say, okay, you don't want to send the Mexican people home. Well, do they have a privilege? Why can't we start flying in people from Africa, fly in people from India? Do the Mexicans have a privilege just because they can walk across the border? That's an unearned privilege to them. And so we can't really become the U United Nations of America, I mean, that, that's not feasible. And so it's all, in that perspective, it's all about getting America solid, again, financially, and putting its own people back to work, and having a fair and legal system of immigration. I mean, of course, America, as we all know, we're a nation of immigrants, okay? But it's about legal immigration. It's not about, you know, entitlement or coming over and think, no, entitlement. It's very much, you know, the entitlement society. So in closing, I'll loop it around to the original question of the liberal crisis or whatever you call it. And it's a crisis based on, as I see it, entitlement issues and not self-reliance. We've heard from the American perspective, and Diana gave us an overview globally. But Sherrod, how do you map this out to the more regional context in Southeast Asia, in China? There's a different story there being told. Mm -hmm. Liberalism was never really like, uh, never really took root here, right? We had strong states, uh, and the mm -hmm. politics death by was different. Do you see a connection between the global picture and Asia more broadly, or is it a disjunct? Wow. Um, let me begin by saying I feel completely incompetent to do these questions um, because they're so large, uh, because it seems that every national or regional framework uh, has a different uh, have different terms of uh, reference. 
Um, but I guess as a journalist and one who's forced to engage with people from different parts of the world um, in my work, I'm actually much more interested in the conversations they're having with themselves. So, you know, how Europeans speak to themselves about uh, what they can think is a crisis, whether it's a crisis of, you know, they have a demographic crisis in Europe today. Europe can't grow without actually getting more <laughs> more people and more and young people. One great way of getting them is, you know, having one million people walk across the border. Um, it will, to some extent, uh, deal with the, dem the question of uh, demographic crisis that's happening there. But there's also a crisis of multiculturalism and, mm -hmm. and, and this idea that you can fashion uh, a, a kind of social architecture that makes everybody respect each other and, and tolerate each other's difference and that in fact will be the basis of some sort of social strength. The American conversation is much more elusive for me but to the extent that I've plugged into it and I read a brilliant book which I recommend all the time on uh, Night School and any other show I'm on BFM because I've read so few books which is um, you know um, uh, Deer Hunting with Jesus, and uh, in this book, uh, a guy called Joe Bagent, he's a journalist who comes back to his um, small town in Virginia and tries to understand the anxieties of people that used to be his friends, people he went to high school with, people who had dreams, who had Che Guevara, you know, posters on their wall, but now uh, sing the praises of rich people and terrified they're going to lose their jobs because, you know, factories are shifting away. The conversation... Uh, that is in America around well the entitlements or the I mean even the criminality of uh, of foreigners as you know as uh, was just suggested all that I I don't know the reality of it because you can for every factoid that's put you know forward about the, what is America's real situation and what Trump is. Uh, trying to do, they'll have there'll be another factoid coming out and say, well, Trump himself has often in his own enterprises uh, hired illegals. So undocumented work is also part of his. But you know, so there's one factoid here and there's another factoid there. But it's the kind of conversations that Americans are having themselves or Europeans are having with themselves that is really the interesting thing because it's not about factoids. It's about how you frame it. And, and I think coming back to Malaysia very quickly. And you know, initially I'd come to this thinking, well, I'm going to talk about the crisis of the body of a 50-year-old man and, and you know what that produces. Um, but I decided this is a far more interesting conversation, um, which is, you know, um, again, how do we deal with a globalized world? I mean, we we ourselves are extraordinarily globalized. Uh, we have our anxieties. You remember the conversations we had over the TPP, uh, the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership Agreement. You know, all that came up. It came up to the fore because it also was about entitlements. It was also about, uh, well, entitlement slash protection, right? And so the two sides of that became very powerful. And it was sovereignty versus, um, uh, against sovereignty was globalization. We, we are globalized, we talk about sovereignty, but we are part of the United Nations, we're part of multilateral fora for which we benefit, but then we talk about sovereignty. So when do we deploy the notion of sovereignty? When do we deploy the question of uh, the notion of entitlement or um, of protection, all this, is really strategic and part of the codes that are used within a particular context. So uh, for me, um, the I, I could never really enter into an American context. The last time I was there was when Obama was fighting Mitt Romney for the, for the presidency. And some of that, some of those issues came up. I think it's also 
what's more interesting from an outside perspective is tone, right? The tone that America, that the tone that Trump brings to social conflict and the resolution of those issues is very interesting because, you know, um, he, his tone is so crass. It is, it, it, you know, and I, I think there's no other way. It's an objective description of his tone, right? And I don't think he chooses to be anything more than crass about it. European, I don't understand also the European context. And, and so, I, but I think in Malaysia, we manage uh, those things. We talk about entitlements and protection. Um, how do we go forward? Well, that's a big question. Yeah. Sharat mentioned globalization, right? Which I think uh, is a very interesting uh, theme here because this was what was celebrated not that long ago. People were, were welcoming uh, the, you know, this world of interconnections, mm -hmm. hyperconnectivity and all that. And to, to an extent, we already have that through social media, right? But it hasn't, that sort of fluidity hasn't translated to, to actual on-the-ground politics, you know? In fact, one could say social media has just polarized us more. So uh, how is this really just an inev inevitable turning point in globalization that we could have seen this coming 20 years ago because... Uh, there were warning signs then, but it's just now that we can't avoid the evidence anymore. I'll come to that, but I just want sure. to refer back to what Sharad said, that there are actually different conversations, different national conversations taking place in different regional, national and regional contexts, in spite of what would appear to be a globalized world. Uh, I think that's a very important point to make. And back to your question then, what are the conversations taking place in Asia? outside of this crisis of liberal democracy in both Europe and in, in, in the US. And I'm reminded, I, I, don't, I don't read Chinese, I don't understand Chinese, but you know in Beijing recently they had this 19th party congress of uh, the Communist Party of China and uh, President Xi Jinping uh, famously gave a three and a half hour speech this speech was a work report. Mm -hmm. It was upbeat from the English translations that I've read. No sense of crisis at all. The China dream, a new era, working towards the 100th anniversary, one belt, one road. So, you know, when we talk of crisis, I think we do have to bear in mind that notwithstanding what we have been saying about globalization for the past 20 years to my students at globalization centers, uh, globalization has been patchy, one, um, and two, um, yeah, different regions have experienced the benefits and the dislocations of, of globalization quite differently. Uh, specifically, could we have foreseen this 20 years ago with the obvious extension of the logic of capitalism, uh, the penetration of globalism, of, 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 of the money economy, of the market economy throughout, the, you know, outside, outside of the, the advanced industrialized West? Once upon, I also read very few books nowadays, but once upon a time I actually read Karl Polanyi, The Great Transformation. And that book was a reflection of uh, why uh, there was World War I and World War II after 100 years mm -hmm. of peace in Europe. But, you know, World War I and World War II, in spite of the fact that it actually for the first time encompassed 
went beyond Europe, the great wars of the 18th, 17th, 18th centuries in, in Europe, it was actually still an intramural affair, primarily. Mm -hmm. Now, his argument was that it was the dislocations brought about by the expansion of the market economy uh, and market society. His basic argument was that prior to the 19th century, prior to the, industrial, uh, to the rise of industrial society, economy, econ the, 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 the commodification of the factors of production, in particular of labor, but land and capital, was embedded in society with the expansion of capitalist economy. The uh, economy is, becomes disembedded and the economy rules over society. That's what happened. Um, and what you then need is protection, entitlement protection. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was what counted eventually. It was a double movement, he said. You, know, you have the expansion of the capitalist economy and then you have the social demand for protection by those who have not benefited from this expansion of the, of the market economy. That was essentially what, what led to the rise of fascism mm -hmm. in the 1930s in Germany and the rest of Europe. And I think beyond the crisis of liberal democracies, which is so palpable today in the West, there is that, 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 that concern uh, that it's not just a political crisis. And I think Diana's point that there isn't, perhaps what you're trying to say is that there isn't demand for protection mm -hmm. uh, at the level of society, at the societal mm -hmm. level. Society. That in, I, think, I think in a way, therefore, maybe our conversation has to go beyond Trump and Trumpism. Amen. Uh, to the underlying social forces, mm -hmm. which result, are resulting in Trump-like phenomena throughout the Western advanced industrial world. And then back to your question, to what uh, degree is that related to the unfettered globalization of the past 20 years? I think, you know, just, uh, I'm glad you mentioned China there, because, um, yeah, it is a triumphant China today. Uh, and despite, you know, a lot of naysayers talking about their financial architecture being under uh, tremendous stress and expecting that collapse, it hasn't really happened. It hasn't. Um, it's... It's proving uh, an argument around uh, democ liberal democracy versus, you know, um, performance-oriented authoritarianism, which I distinguish from, you know, the the, the not so performing uh, authoritarian, uh, you know, governments around the world. I take Singapore as a case in point because I and I grew up there. And I know there was always this tension, and for us who uh, who wanted to push uh, the liberal democratic line, the idea was that this was, you know, it would become self-serving, and it would it would um, it would spiral into nepotism and cronyism, and eventually it wouldn't produce very much for those countries. But China is showing that they, you can't even, ma you can manage authoritarianism in a way. Xi Jinping might be dismantling that, uh, but well, there's a prospect of that, that he might take away the limits, term limits, uh, that he, he's already made his Xi Jinping thought, he thought along with Deng Xiaoping and, and Mao Zedong. 
Um, but, you know, to the extent that he produces the results for the Chinese people, by and large, they will support him. And you can see that. You saw that in the streets of uh, Kuala Lumpur when we had the, I, I a couple of years ago, we had uh, some protests around uh, Tibet. And, you know, the response by Chinese citizens who were here was very violent and, and unruly against, you know, people who were supporting Tibetan rights. Um, and and they're very bullish on their government, you know, and they're not small, you know, they're not Singapore, you know, this is a billion yeah. people. Um, and they are transforming the world in their own image, I mean, to the extent that they can. Um, and I, I think it's going to be very difficult to make the argument for liberal democracy that is somehow decoupled from the question of performance the, uh, of, in terms of governance, in terms of delivering goods for people and social protections. Well, you see, the thing is, the, the German situation is somewhat different to the American one. The German economy is booming. Yep. The job market is booming. They don't know what to do. That, as, as Gerard says, they're dying for people to come in. But, of course, not everyone, of, of the million people who come in, not everyone is, as they say, a Syrian doctor or, right. or, a, or an Afghan engineer. Mm -hmm. In fact, in fact, the vast majority of them will not probably be even integrated into the German labor market. At the moment, I mean, I was quite shocked. I was back in some of this year. And you know, in Malaysia, we have what? Four million, three, four million illegal, undocumented uh, migrants. And we know they're all working. Because heck, you need to work to be able to survive. There are no entitlements to welfare payments in Malaysia. So they're all working, they're all working illegally. So I just assumed with one million, and it's one million plus now, because one million was 2016, it's now 2017, uh, they would also be working illegally in, 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 in Germany and contributing to the German economy. Uh-uh. That's, that's where the issue comes in. No, they not don't. because they don't want to, because no German employer would dare employ uh, an, uh, an asylum seeker, because they all they 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 apply for asylum. No German employer would dare employ an asylum, a foreign asylum seeker illegally. I mean, the state works yeah. in Germany. The state works, and the state mm -hmm. has delivered. And in fact, it is generally attributed to Gerhard Schröder and the and the reforms that he made before mm -hmm. Merkel took over. But that is the worrying thing that you have in Europe. Actually, or at least in Germany and in the Scandinavian countries as well, the one sick man has been France. Germany has been very successful economically, and yet, and yet, there still has been this counter, this backlash. Yeah. And that's an interesting way to frame the problem in that despite the world being so interconnected and we think we've sort of transcended the old world idea of rigid borders and stuff, culture seems to be the center focal point for politics. Right, uh, nationalism has yet to really show that it can think beyond itself. So, what makes culture such a potent organizing force politically? Why are we still attached to this idea of culture or na national identity in a world that's very globalizing? Well, um, what I always found interesting is ninety-three to ninety-six. I lived in Beijing, China, and it was still. Um, it wasn't like it is today. It was still uh, on the fringes of entering into what it is today, but it was still very much the old way. Um, and then, you know, I've now lived in Kuala Lumpur for 10 years, and I've traveled all throughout 
Asia, and I'm always referred to as a foreigner, which is perfectly okay. I mean, I don't have problems with that. Yes, I am a foreigner. But in America, nobody is a foreigner. Nobody is referred to as a foreigner. You go to any large American city. I was born and raised in New Orleans. I lived several years in Houston, Texas, and then I did my doctoral work out in the uh, somewhat in San Diego and then the Bay Area of California. We're talking huge metropolitan places uh, with every different size, shape, and color under the sun and, and beyond that. But nobody is ever thought of as a foreigner. If you're in America, you're, of, you're an American of whatever descent, but, but nonetheless, you're um, an American. So now, looping back around to your question about nationalism uh, being rigid where we're globalizing, um, pardon me again for going back to an American perspective, but I, America's not trying to become nationalistic in that sense. We are very much a melting pot with all the different colors and shapes and whatnot, but it's moving toward being legal, not being entitled. Come, get there legally, work in whatever your field of work is, contribute to the tax base. But what the problem is, generally speaking, of course, not straight across the board, people are coming in illegally, very much taking from the tax base and not contributing to it. And so that's where America gets tied up into it. It's not like we want everybody to be white or whatever. It's just we want people to contribute and to be self-reliant and not come in with a bunch of entitlement issues. And as far as that goes, the American citizens themselves, the ones on welfare with all of it, because I used to work for the welfare department several years, too many years, it's another story, Entitlement issues, and that's what the move in America is to, you know, eradicate, make better, or whatever, is for people to be self-reliant and not trying to just live off of taxpayers' money. One interesting way in which I think the American conversation, I mean, there are themes, right, motifs in the American conversation that I can detect. One of them is this question of jobs. And a job, you know, and I think uh, with Trump, the idea of bringing jobs back uh, from mm -hmm. the rest of the world and, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and releasing jobs that are taken by foreigners or uh, non-documented workers. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the jobs in America that have been lost have been lost to robots. And this is something that um, Trump doesn't talk about. And, and the, those jobs are never coming back. And so uh, you can put money back in America, but it's not going to go into quite the job creation, as I understand it. Well, that, that's a different topic. Yeah. yeah. But, but it's important because jobs are a very emotive thing, because it goes back to a question, uh, an issue that you raise of self-reliance. Yes. And I like the idea of self-reliance. I, I think it's a very powerful notion that has to be there in the mix. Uh, and I'm reminded of a book uh, that's written specifically for an American audience by the historian Tony Judd, Ill Fares the Land. And Ill Fares the Land is a book that makes the argument that 
for social democracy in America? Because, because it's very strange the way the terms operate in these sure. different contexts, right? Social democracy in European context becomes communism or socialism, or some weird monster in the American mm-hmm. context. And what Tony Judd tries to do in a very, uh, uh, a beautifully stylistic prose that he has, uh, to explain what it means to talk about social democracy, what it is, it's, it is, it's, it's not a discarding of, of self-reliance, it is not about the state uh, mollycoddling people, it really is the idea that communities, society is only possible when we all look out for each other, that society is only possible when we cross-subsidize, if you like. Society is only possible when we have ideologies of inclusiveness, you know, and I'm maybe now extending beyond Tony Judd, but that's, I think, the idea that is uh, very normal, I think, in a European context, but extraordinarily alien and un- un- uh, speakable almost in an American context. And so when, you, when Do- Tony Judd begins his uh, appeal, it's an appeal for calm. It's an appeal to the American people to think carefully about what these terms mean and not be terrified by somebody who shouts socialism, you know, uh, every time a broader perspective is brought to the table. Possibly, but also America is a lot bigger and a lot more complicated. You know, Europe is 600 million people, and America is slightly less than that, isn't it? Yeah. But about 270, <laughs> Uh, Polanyi would probably have argued in America you had the frontier. And so in a way, the ideology of self-reliance yeah. and the expansion of mm-hmm. the logic of capitalism could work. In Europe, on the other hand, because it's much more it's the old continent, mm-hmm. the dislocations of the, of the market economy necessitated social protection, which was what uh, mm-hmm. European social democracy provided. Um, and I... That is one of, for me, the saddest uh, 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 phenomena of the last couple of years in, 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 the Europe, in European liberal democracies, the collapse of the social democratic parties in Europe. It began with Greece in the wake mm-hmm. of the Greek crisis, the total collapse of PASOK, uh, the recent French elections, the total collapse of the, of, of the French Socialist Party, of course, the Conservative Party as well, but the total collapse of the of the French Socialist Party, which has a long, a proud history, yeah. that is what I find really worrying and distressing yeah. about the crisis of liberal democracy in in Europe, in the European context, as, as Sharad mm-hmm. and you say, you know, social democracy never played that role right. in America. Maybe briefly during the New Deal, you could say under that's Roosevelt. right. That was Teddy during the New yeah. Deal, yeah. that's yeah. right. But the entire post-World War II domestication of Europe and the successful rebuilding of Europe rested on this social democratic consensus. Yeah. So what is it that, that uh, the populace is seeking protection from in Europe? One of the arguments is that it's cultural. It's seeking protection from open borders. Mm-hmm. You've, you know, I want to latch on to a word that... Um, stood out to me in your in just what you said just now, you know, feeling worried, dis- distressed. Uh, you're an educator, and you, you just joined a new uh, up-and-coming institution as well. I, what goes through your mind when you, when you uh, think about these things? Because I think uh, we can't just look at the news anymore without feeling, right? Especially uh, how 
granted we've talked about crisis in the economic sense, political sense, but climate change is real as well. It's all connected, right, in terms of the broader economic race. So the crisis is in the air we breathe, literally, today. Share some of your thoughts and feelings in terms of how do you engage with all this, you know, and still be curious and still feel connected? Or is it more of a defensive uh, thought process that you have? Um, shed light on that for us. I think for me, because I, I, I was away for so long from Asia, and then when I returned to Asia, it was to Singapore. And Singapore is a part of Asia, definitely, but it's part of this global world. And when I came to Malaysia to work in Malaysia, in Malaysian university settings, I realized how little I understood about Malaysia, looking at it from Singapore. I think if I can begin by just coming back to that, 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 that remark you made, that you know we've become more connected, we're all globalized, and yet we seem to uh, understand each other less. I think maybe, maybe this notion that borders fell and we came to, there was far more connectivity and far more communication was a bit misleading. I think we perhaps, well, perhaps we uh, uh, participated in a globalized cultural space. It's not just the economic space. I think a globalized cultural space was indeed uh, created, which made it possible for us to participate in this. It's largely the internet. I remember the 70s when, you know, if you were stuck in the, out in the boondocks in Kuala Lumpur, uh, you didn't know what was going on in the world. Today we know about Trump, we know about Macron, we know about Merkel, we know about Catalonia. We probably know more about Catalonia than we do about Beijing, you know, mm -hmm. or, or Tibet, or Xinjiang, but that's we. In, I think we do live, uh, there are ideological, there are echo chambers. A lot of it is ideological, but I think most of it is linguistic. The fact that I don't read Chinese means I'm shut off from not just mm -hmm. China, but a globalized cultural sphere, Sinos, Sinophone sphere. And that's globalized as well. It's not just the People's Republic of China. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The fact that I read Malay, but I generally don't read Malay, means I don't have access to, again, a transnational Malay, and in particular, Muslim, Islamic, a transnational Islamic cultural sphere. And I think that's something that perhaps we inhabit an Anglo-Saxon, essentially, mm -hmm. uh, Anglo-globalized uh, sphere. And we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, kid ourselves that this is the only form of globalization that has occurred. And, and it's hard enough to handle just the amount of volume information in the Anglo world, right. never mind the others, right? So, Sharat, you deal with you know, information changing every day or even by the hour, right? Because uh, you're having to just know what's going and on. And the media does not give you the full picture. Mm -hmm. The media is very much censored, you know? And if you really want to get unbiased both sides of the, the picture, I recommend um, realclearpolitics.com or freecanadianpress.com, and you will get uncensored, non-biased input from both sides of the fence in terms of North America and 
not just America, but North yeah. America and what's going it's on It's interesting. There. I just found out that NBC, supposedly the liberal uh, corporate CNN network. CNN is... Ugh. Yeah. NBC is owned by General or Electric. MB, what's right. the other one? MBSN something. MSNBC, something, something. yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Well, as a journalist, it's, it's very difficult because um, no. all these conversations are complex. Uh, but I do think it's the terms that we use that help us move the conversation forward. So I, I think, you know, in the past, we, we uh, sociologists would talk about it, but everybody else would talk about the, the failures of the welfare state. Uh, today, the conversation seems to be. Uh, about uh, universal basic income and the universal basic income initiative, right? And that, you know, and I was talking to, and I had to interview a a man, uh, Guy Standing is a British um, academic who wrote a book called The Precariat. I mean, he's got several books. One of those is The Precariat, and he's looking at the the nature of work today, what it produces uh, in terms of politics, the precariousness of work, uh, the, mm-hmm. the, the, what is celebrated is the gig economy, the dark side of, of course, is uh, precariousness, and that uh, leads to also a lot of fascistic and right-wing politics, people getting anxious. And I say fascism, I don't mean just the right, because the left and the right uh, have today converged on, in, on many, in many ways uh, around very similar issues around job security and such. Mm-hmm. But it's the terms that we use that help us uh, that lock us into particular kind of conversations, and then how do we graduate from those terms? I think is much uh, is what I'm interested in. But I actually wanted to to just tell a little story about my grandfather, who was a you know who studied in the University of Madras, studied math at the turn of the century. I think he graduated in the 1913s or something, and uh, he came to Malaya. And he, as a police officer, cause he tried to be a teacher, but he couldn't get a job as a teacher. He became a police officer, and he read the newspapers, and the, the newspapers were telling him there was an impending crisis. You know, this was in the, and in the 30s, he uh, started keeping rice. I don't know, this is illegal hoarding, I don't know what it is. <laughs> but he hoarded rice. And that rice, that bin of rice, my mother tells me, lasted through the war years. And, you know, and it was a globalized world. I mean, the 30s was globalized. Yeah, I mean, we're no different from the 30s in many ways. It was a question of how you read. And, and my grandfather was, and I think this is the thing that we haven't really talked about, which is vulnerabilities, is my grandfather was protecting his family against what he thought was an impending world war. I mean, there'd already been a world war. There was no, there's no reason not to believe there could be another one. Uh, and so, you know, those vulnerabilities, whether in, in the sense of the families' vulnerabilities or communities or personal vulnerabilities come into play. And what are the terms we use when we look out in the world? Do we use language that uh, just demonizes others? I mean, you know, so we blame everything. I mean, if you read some of the Malaysian news, tabloidy type newspapers, or even more serious newspapers, you think that foreigners uh, come from wherever countries they come and they dig up loads of ringgit and they take this ringgit back with them and they come at depleting our store of ringgit. People don't really know how wealth is created. They don't know that our economy would grind to a halt without these foreigners documented or otherwise, right? So there is this real gap in the way people imagine the world, they imagine wealth creation, and they imagine the stealing of our wealth by foreigners. Get rid of the foreigners, all this wealth would be ours because it would be there for us to scrape out of the earth or something. I don't know. I mean, these me- metaphors get used over and over again, but 
if we indulge in demonizing foreigners and all that, I, mean, I think we're generally not going down the right road in terms of clear economic thinking and a political solution to the problems. No, I agree entirely with you. I think we have to be very careful about the language we use. And that's what's disturbing about Trumpism. And not just Trumpism, I think this... But what, the, what is the language that... Oh, I was just going to say that it's actually on both sides of the fence, mm -hmm. I mean, if you... You know, I suppose one, for, for me, mm -hmm. one reason why I find the whole development over the past two, three years, it's mm -hmm. just been, what, two, 2015 and we're just 2017 now, is again how little I had anticipated it and how little I still understand about mm -hmm. it. But I really, when I went back in summer of 2016, I thought Merkel would automatically win the election. She must be so popular. She's been so good. Of course, what's wrong with Clinton? Hillary Clinton. She's going to be the first lady president, woman president of the USA. She's bound to win. Uh, recently, an article was written by a guy called Wang Zisi, who is mm -hmm. not quite the equivalent of, he's probably the nearest to Dugin, to Putin in China, is a very influential foreign policy advisor to, to the Chinese leadership. Uh, he's, he's an IR person and, and knows a, is a specialist in China for, 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 for the U.S. relations with the U.S. Mm -hmm. And he wrote a think piece in which he said, uh, he, he, about the U.S. elections, and he said, I, everything I read in the U.S. media and every single, because he had a lot of connections, academic, uh, colleague he spoke to was convinced that Clinton would win. Every single piece he read in the media, every colleague, every journalist, every academic, every American he spoke to was convinced that Clinton would win. We all were. Now, I think that's, that should make us reflect about our biases. Our own mm -hmm. biases. Mm -hmm. It's not just uh, the other side who has biases, but our side, so to speak. Uh, and that, again, is perhaps the frightening, the disturbing thing about the public square today. There is uh, a callous use of language on both sides. Mm -hmm. There is an unwillingness to engage in dialogue, in conversation. Let's not use the word dialogue. In conversation with each other in the public square on both or so on, on three or four sides. The fact of the matter is the world is fragmented, not yeah, just within so. the nation, but between nations, within regions. I mean, Catalonia, I mean, they have Europe, and now they want to get out of mm -hmm. Spain. Mm -hmm. You know, I came back and I thought, my God, aren't they lucky, these Europeans have got Europe. Let's do something with ASEAN and see where they are today. Yeah. It's interesting to hear this coming from you, and to an extent, uh, significantly, I, I relate to that because... Uh, at least in academia, there are pretensions of like methodological objectivity, of like making sure that our frameworks are correct so that we can explain the phenomena. And like you said, all of that seems questionable now, given the rapid changes recently, right? What accounts for that disjunction? You know, at what point did that gap happen to that surprising extent? Meaning that everybody thought that Hillary... Uh, and again, if you no, were... When did we stop Yeah, it's not about Hillary so much. But like, other. Yeah. When, oh, let, not even that, when did we, or, uh, let me speak for myself, uh -huh. when did I stop understanding uh, um, the rest of the world, uh, quite apart from my world? Yeah. 
why did the thick description which we as academics are supposed to be committed to, why was this thick description not available to me? Thick, de- okay, well, I'm getting a little lost. Is Sorry, what do you mean by thick description? I'm using a, f- a phrase used by kids in anthropology okay. that, that to understand society, we need to have a thick description, uh, a, a granular uh, understanding of what's going on in from, that society. From all Describing the phenomenon. Yeah. yeah. And, and what seems to have happened is that we didn't, we, we, I certainly wasn't aware of what was happening in Germany. Mm-hmm. I wasn't aware of what was happening in, in the U.S., Absolutely, because... But I was reading the papers and I was talking to academic colleagues. Because if you go to America itself, many people were not surprised that Hillary didn't win. And so if you stay within the context of mainland America, you get a very different perspective. Mainland is in not San Francisco, New York. On all of this, yeah. And... Well, again, I don't want to get into it, but if, but if you look at the, the elections, Hillary had the bookends. She had California and she had New York, but everything in between was as red as red gets. And so if you keep within America, many people, the liberals were surprised because they have a tendency not to take off their blinders and they get very myopic. And especially after eight years of Obama, I can understand why they were myopic. But the rest of them were not surprised at all. I, I think also, I mean, if the analysis is correct, it was the, the, you already saw it in the drift of the Republican Party. A lot of what Trump is was already there in the language of Republican leaders and such. But, you know, and, and the American story is interesting, but for me, it's not the future. I mean, the future really is China. And, you know, the future is all these other countries that are now having to think about what... China represents for us. I mean, it's, it's interesting, you know, Diana, that you mentioned uh, ASEAN because there was this great hope and then we had ethnic cleansing and yeah. our complete and utter failure to deal mm-hmm. with ethnic cleansing. I mean, now we'll have to carry that burden, not because of what Myanmar did to the Rohingya, but mm-hmm. what we didn't do in the rest of the region and, you know, the Malaysian government's um, um, gestures, uh, token or otherwise, uh, notwithstanding, you know. So when it comes back to the, the question of vulnerability, because, you know, I mentioned Guy standing again, because what he argues for, what the people who argue for basic, uh, universal basic income are saying is that when you give people that amount that allows them to survive and not think about, you know, um, their survival, they actually become better people. They're much more productive, they're much more communal, they're more given to thinking the long term rather than the short term. There are all these really positive benefits, and this experiment going on in India and several other countries. Guy Standing said that 10 years ago he would never have been invited to Davos, he's been invited to Davos. Mark Zuckerberg, in his address, when he finally graduated, I think they he dropped out and then, you know, whoever, is it Harvard that Mark Zuckerberg went to? They finally gave him, you know, his motorboard. Yeah, the Facebook, yeah, Mark Zuckerberg, that fella, uh, who might be your next president, uh, says, you know, he, he talked about universal basic income in his address, in his graduating address, because the world cannot afford to continue the way it does. And but can, create, can a country like Malaysia afford to provide basic... Uh, ah, so, so the Indian experiment is interesting. It's not happening in a, in a developed nation. 
So what would universal basic income mean? How would it? How would you cost it? Where would it come from? Uh, and what? Would it produce? I think there are there are a lot of liberal uh, Malaysians, a lot of people in the the chattering classes, and you know my, the radio station I work for, you know, addresses them largely. They would be horrified to think that there would be handouts. We love using with handouts. Handouts is a bad word, by the way. Handouts is not good, and you know we uh, because the middle classes of Malaysia think that they are the ones who produce the wealth of this nation, and they are loath to think that people are getting free money, you know? We're a nation that, you know, doesn't like our civil service, think it's bloated when in fact it might not be. The factoids, the facts and all that, it's very difficult because you know that no matter how much you throw facts at people, their insecurities frame those facts and translate it for them and gives them the stuff of their reality. Um, so the one thing that I think we haven't, had in Malaysia is a conversation where we all agree what is the situation. In fact, we don't. We, yeah. we have multiple realities Absolutely. and we're talking from those different points of view. That's why we never uh -huh. come to any conclusions. Yeah. I mean, speaking of bubbles, Malaysia is like bubbles within bubbles, right? Absolutely. Linguistic bubbles, religious bubbles, I mean, the Ilham bubble. Right? So, uh, how do you... A very pretty bubble. Look at that. <laughs> these, are, these are images this, from an the kind of bubble time. I, I, I'd be happy to inhabit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what analogies do you draw between the global situation and our local concerns? Well, the danger of living in bubbles. The recognition that we are caught in bubbles. I think that's one very, I think that's actually one thing the global conversation can learn from the Malaysian conversation. I think, in fact, part of the problem with the so-called global conversation is it's assumed that, that, that uh, it's global. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think what we have learned over the past two or three years in, with this populist uh, rebellion, and the word rebellion has been used, mm -hmm. uh, against the global elite is that there has, it has been pretty much in the stratosphere, mm -hmm. this global conversation. Mm -hmm. and, and we have participated in it, mm -hmm. but many others haven't. Going to China, back to China, I mean, in this global conversation today in the West as well, I mean, if you read Badiou recently, his, well, not recently, in 2014, his speech to, in, in Greece, coming to the term vulnerabilities, precarity, uh, the precariat, pre precarity. You, uh, well, sorry, I'm, I'm just going off side clause after clause. Um, I think one of the buzzwords several, maybe up to five years ago with globalization was cosmo cosmopolitan. Today, cosmopolitan, yes. Today, the buzzword is precarity. I think that is quite symptomatic of, 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 of what's been happening at the structural level in global capitalism. But also, it's also symptomatic of the emotionality today in the global cultural, the re emotional register in the, the global cultural sphere. Cosmopolitanism was upbeat. It was a promise. We were getting there. Precarity is, evokes a totally different emotional register. When I first heard, read uh, Guy Standing's uh, work on, on precarity, this work was actually based on OECD uh, statistics. And I thought, what the heck? We've had precarity in our economies for decades. It's nothing new at all. It's nothing to do with the new globalization. 
uh, we had families and networks exactly and i think that is part if we were to go beyond you know the mm-hmm. the the purely political level in post war post world war 2 developments in the anglophone mm-hmm. and american sphere america's a bit different but let's say the european sphere so arena there has been if you take polanyi again the relationship between the state and the market the state has disembedded itself from or the market has disembedded itself from the state but there's one further a structural factor and that is the individual so no, not the individual sorry society and the market has not just disembedded itself from society the individual has been disembedded from society and that hasn't happened So the fragmentation, there's so many layers to it, right? There are uh, so many layers to the, the social fragmentation, but also within that, uh, individuals seeing themselves more as separate units than Absolutely. as a connected entity. And uh, there is no protection outside of the state in in Western liberal democracies today. So the state has to is plays a role of distribution. And basic universal basic income is an act is a means of redistribution. Uh, we have time actually to take this conversation to you as well as the audience here. Uh, I'm sure you're processing a lot of in the exchanges that's happened mm-hmm. so far. Uh, so we'd like to hear if you have any comments, questions, observations you'd like to share. Uh, Hi, um, thanks for that. I thought it was really interesting to hear uh, what you guys had to say about precarity and crisis. My question is like, yeah, I do agree that neoliberal globalization has caused a lot of crisis. cause a lot of precarity, cause fragmentation, um, this idea that the individual is king because, you know, and um, whatever happens to you, happens to you because you haven't done something right. But where are our sites of resistance besides going towards the far right, besides turning to religious fundamentalism? Like, are there any sites of resilience that we can turn to? Is it a return to democracy? Like, do you think we could go back to strong labor movements, to like class war, for example, or do you think we could turn to NGOs, to social democratic movements, you know, where people speak up, where people push governments to become more accountable to the majority rather than to the financial elite, for example? Like, where where do you see that happening? Do do you, do you see that in our future, for example? Or do you, do you think that it'll just continue to become more divisive, continue to become more religious, more closed? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Actually, we can take a few more questions uh-huh. so that maybe that, um, we can take them thematically. Any other thoughts, comments, or questions? Yes. Hi. Um, I'm interested to anchor the discussion on crisis vulnerabilities around the Malaysian context. And particularly, what I'm personally interested in is sort of the, the dialogue amongst um, the Malay Muslim society in Malaysia. So when I attend Friday prayers, every Friday, right, I try to avoid the government-run um, mosques. But when I do uh, attend because of logistics or whatever, right, most of the time the, 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 the Jaqim-approved or Jais-approved kubba always circles around some sort of crisis. Some sort of a sense of the Malays being under siege. We're being we're being threatened by the liberals, and and, and finding that Rukun Negara talks about liberality, and now liberality is an evil word, right? It's just thirty, forty years hence. Um, so this sense that the Malays are the Malay Muslims are under threat. My my, my question is, and anchoring back to your your conversation around sort of the global economic situation, cultural situation, is how much of this dialogue amongst the Muslim 
Malay Muslim community, how much of it is real? How much of it is really anchored on economic, uh, cultural um, anxieties? And how much of it is, is sort of being manufactured for some other nefarious purposes? I'm just curious on your, your thoughts on that. Thank you. Interesting uh -huh. question. Any other questions maybe on that side of the room? Perhaps? Just a simple question from where we left off in the US in terms of entitlements. So perhaps um, a bit of an opinion on entitlements in Malaysia? In Malaysia? Okay. Yeah, thank you. Everybody wants to feel entitled, uh, even here. <laughs> Feels nice. Anything else, maybe? All right, so three very interesting questions. First, alternative sites of resistance and resilience. Uh, secondly, the discourse of crisis among the Malay uh, Muslims and entitlements. How do they play out in Malaysia? So who wants to take this first? <laughs> well, I will at some point, but maybe I'll let you start first. Me? <laughs> okay, I, sensitive I, I, let me suggest something that we could all read. I think um, two essays in a book um, edited by Wang Gangwu, the historian on um, national narratives. And I, I believe that not just Malaysia, the other countries, but there are two essays that pertain to Malaysia and they suggest a very, very different narratives, just two major narratives that operate in this country that really put us on, in some ways, on different planets with regard to uh, whose country this is, what kind of country do we want it to be, uh, who, who has a voice in this country, whose voice is subordinate, uh, and, and, and so on and so forth. And I, I think that's actually quite true. And I, I was, it was shocking for me to read, when I first read that kind of the narrative I was familiar with, I thought, yeah, 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 you know, you tick, 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 yes, that's right. And then when I read the other essay, I thought, oh, I, I'd never heard of these books. I, I'd never heard of this other way. And, I, and all I remember it being in some ways implied in some of the discussions that we've had over the years. I remember Chandra Muzaffar very famously saying that Malay society had been very generous in allowing Malaya, and specifically Malaya, to become what it's become. It is a society that accommodated difference, that allows, you know, not only allowed people to come and live, but in many ways uh, take over, you know, and so they. And I thought, oh, yeah, I guess. some Because I pushed back on the Chandra Muzaffar argument, you know, in my own mind, uh, you know. But it, it's there, and it's a very powerful narrative that continues to uh, shape this country. So when people say they're under siege, it's been going on for some time. If you look at this um, Malay Concordance project, I think it's out of some Australian newspaper that digitizes old texts and newspapers, you'll find discussions about foreigners taking over, say, uh, barbers, barbershops being taken over by non-Malays. And it, it is very interesting. This was happening in the 30s, you know. So this is an old conversation. There's nothing new. I, I just, the, the thing is, so how do we, instead of saying, yeah, but it's not true, and it's, uh, or everybody has a right, I don't know we found the vocabulary to get us to move this conversation forward. I, I, so that's how I see it. I don't think it's particularly new. I don't know if it's nefarious. Uh, I think, in fact, what it is, it is just a reflection of, you know, as these paintings are, of anxieties and desires. That's all it is. I think I want to ground the anxiety to the, I guess, uh, one of the underlying concerns or preoccupations with the modernization project. And that was to create a self-sufficient Malay merchant class 
right? That was the goal, the NEP, that you would have a progressive bourgeoisie, basically, to speak in European terms, that would be innovative, that could sort of be exemplars for the community, so on and so forth. And that's despite all the efforts and all the morale that's been coming from the state, and of course, the, the politics and corruption as a result, has never really materialized, right? So we, we have a very, very young middle class that's never really been tested politically, in the sense that we don't know our political metal in that sense, uh, as opposed to the merchant classes of Europe, which, you know, is a few hundred years old already. You know, it survived revolutions, it survived crises, its own political consciousness. But uh, with, at least in the Malay middle classes, which actually is very, very drawn to crisis discourses, right? It, this, the crisis discourses of the kind you speak of has a very, how would you say, middle slash aspirational class undertones, overtones. The idea that the idea that the future is for the taking resonates only with a certain class, right? So, uh, and for the, the Malay, the project of building that Malay middle slash merchant class, uh, which we all feel is not quite durable yet, uh, that's an opening for all sorts of fears, right? And I think that's what, whether there's an actual intended agency behind it as somebody pulling the strings to do this or whether it just sort of mutates on its own, it does point to quote-unquote material absences that we haven't quite addressed or really settled our feelings towards whether or not commercially we're resilient enough as a community, you know, so. Yeah, I wish I had something to say to it. I think it's a great question. I think it really refocuses our mind uh, in our, 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 our conversation to you know the fact that there are crises in different uh, locales, different uh, situations. This 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 uh, discourse of crisis uh, in the Malay Muslim community is not new. It was there in the twenties and thirties, and then I think you're right. It, it's I suppose it has to be understood on, as well, not as something internal, mm-hmm. but in the context of competition with others in the polity, others in the market, uh, in, in, in society. And in that respect, obviously, the, the, the Bumiputra discourse, building an advanced bourgeoisie, is to be seen in the context of competition with the Chinese bourgeoisie, which controls the economy in this country. You can even hear it in everyday chapter, like, can Malays compete? You yeah. know? Yeah. Uh, if it's yeah. not in business, it's uh, in education, right? And there's this sort of anxiety that we've got to compete, we've got to compete. And it's going to drive you nuts at some point, you know? And it's blaring at home, it's blaring in mosques, and uh, they all connect somehow, yeah. Right. Yeah. It's not just the Malay you know, communities. Look at the Indian working class in this country, you know, and how embattled they are and how much that the violence that often associated, sometimes in a stereotypical fashion, sometimes maybe in, in not, uh, is really a function of the history of the Indian working class coming out of the plantations. I remember talking to this young man about you know his early years. He started working when he was 10 or 8 or something like that. And he worked as, you know, in the mechanic shop. He was cheated completely of his wages for years. And then when he was about 16 and, you know, well, he, he'd now grown up and puberty had struck and all that, and he told me that he beat up the guy who, um, uh, who cheated on his wages. And I said, well, what do you do that? It's violence is bad. This is liberal speaking. <laughs> violence is bad. You know, you should have taken this issue up. You can go. He says, you know, he was, first of all, functionally illiterate. 
And uh, he didn't know. He didn't know. I mean, violence was the only way for him, right, to at least express his feelings. And this happens on a daily basis that people get cheated, right? And the Indian working class, I mean, to the extent that it can fight back, it fights back by, you know, gangs are a function of that. It's solidarity, yes. it's protection, it's um, it, a sense of identity in a world that's going to look down on you at every turn, right? So, so what do we say? Yeah, we want to get rid of the Indian gangs. Yes, well, of course, you, you know, good liberal people living in middle-class enclaves, because we don't like gangs, you know? But that doesn't solve the problem, right? I mean, this is, I mean, there are a lot of vulnerab vulnerable communities in this country, and it's not just, you know, in the Indian, Chinese, Malay thing. And I think this is why art and the filmmakers that we have now and people who make documentaries tell us there's no such, I mean, these, all these terms that we use, um, too broad, they don't capture the realities, their pockets, and then the individuals, they're all this, this is a country of walking wounded, you know, <laughs> vulnerable, hurt, angry, don't know who to, to yeah, and not Everybody's this country, hurt. it's, it's, a, you know, it's a, you know, humanity, Everybody right, hurts. walking so everyone, wounded. Every community yes. is in crisis. Yes. That's why Game of Thrones, you know, speaks to all of us. <laughs> but actually, uh, I'll get back to you soon, Dana. But uh, Sharat, your, your mention of Indians and then you mentioning the broader global story, I want to tie it to uh, the question just now. And that, especially for this generation, uh, we're so interconnected globally that our references are not just local, in that, uh, you know, the person running Google right now was born in Chennai. So there must be some aspiring kid in Kajang right now who wants to think in Facebook terms, you know? So the pressure isn't just to be like, you know, leading a company uh, somewhere in Sha'alam or something anymore. They're thinking about, well, how do I get noticed globally? You know, that, that's mm -hmm. how do I uh, represent my voice out there? You know, so the fact that we're so interconnected means that we aspire more, and in that aspiration comes just more, you know, emotional pressures. You know, so do you think kids in Kajang really aspire to lead out? <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I you haven't been to Kajang recently, no, Shara. I, mean, I live near there. <laughs> no, no. I mean, so I mean, let's not look down Kajang, on Kajang people. Kajang. There's more than satay there, I can it tell is you the that. It is the Malaysian working class. <laughs> I mean, this people in Sarawak are angry. People in Sabah are angry. They feel the Federation has failed them, right? This is where the narrative okay. is also breaking down. Never mind about, you know, peninsula-centric, Malay-centric, Muslim-centric discourses. You know, we completely left them out of the picture. And the, Malay the Malaysian media, largely centered on the peninsula, doesn't capture that. I mean, we have a hard time even acknowledging the, you know, people in Sabah and Sarawak and their particular problems. I mean, poverty is highest in some of those, in those communities, right? So, um, but coming back to the question of resilience, and I think that's a, an important one. If you want to end, end on a high note, or something, <laughs> if you want to end on a happy note, how do we, it's not just resistance, it's re resilience. One of my mother's favorite words she uses when she sort of narrates her own personal history uh, you know, uh, you know, di divorcing my dad and, and being a single mother. What do you reach out for as an individual? What do you reach to as a community to push your head? Sometimes it's identity, but identity is a double-edged sword, right? It can be read, especially if you come from the majority community, as chauvinism and arrogance and, and uh, ethno-nationalism and all that. But the other hand, it's also... You're who you are, it anchors you, right? And it's it's wonderful when it comes from a minority community because they're not, it's not so threatening. You know, when it comes to a, a minority community, it comes from a, because we have big minorities in this country, from tiny minorities. 
they're less threatening. Then we can celebrate. You know, this is why there's a lot of interest in orang asli issues from from communities that want to kind of universalize this idea of um, of ethnic rights and minority rights. But I don't know with that concern about orang asli. I think generally orang asli communities have been left to themselves to defend. Um, but they they're, they're wonderful to have on your side because you say, yeah, you see, we're interested in minority rights. Yeah, the thoughts on resilience. Yeah, well, two things to that second question, resilience and resistance. Actually, I think I'm so cut off from society. I just, I'm, I never Because you live, because you work in Kajang now? Because I, because I work in Kajang and I live in Kapong, you know. So. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think it is important. Social embeddedment is important. And uh, it's not just the nation state. Uh, there are units or there are collective uh, collective identities and, and not just identity, relationships below the nation state. Mm-hmm. And I think maybe the problem with this globalization discourse has been it has just pitched the global versus the national as if these were the only two and, and you know, open borders in between. I think that has perhaps done a disser- been of a disservice not just to those, uh, not just to the liberal democracies, but to struggling economies and societies like ours, plural societies like ours, for whom precarity has been integral to our condition of being, a collective condition of being, both economically as well as culturally and socially. Since the very beginning, if you're a migrant, you don't have your whole family with you. It meant perhaps you, 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 you relied, you were closer if you were a small minority. But it also means, like in Chinatown, the, the poor that are very often, uh, elderly men and women, Indian Chinese, who never got married or who lost a spouse and never remarried. Children are not around. They are the ones who are most precarious and most vulnerable. And there are people like that. But I, so, so I think, I, of course, I don't have an answer to your question, but I, I would think we have to think more about, about collective, uh, 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 social, about society, uh, as well. But I think maybe in terms of, of discourse, I think one of the, key terms that perhaps again we have been neglecting in the discourse in the global in the globalization discourse is 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 the term citizenship i you know bannon has actually picked it up in his discourse in america steve bannon steve bannon it's being picked up by the right and well it's a critical issue because if you have open borders you the question of citizenship right. is central. It's yeah. immediately raised. Uh-huh. So in the context of liberal democracies, we have a different context uh-huh. in which uh, we have to think through and maybe practice, clarify the meaning of citizenship. It is, a, again, also a contested concept in our context, but we have also stopped talking about it, um, given actually the overwhelming dominance of the discourse on globalization and cosmopolitanism in the past past two decades. Any other questions? We have time for more. Yes. Hello. Good afternoon. I'm just really curious to hear from the panel. Um, in the face of crisis vulnerabilities, uh, where does this sense of grappling paranoia go? Has it reached a uh, tipping point? 
and is it containable at some point in the face of you know uh, societal uh, civilization, humanity? Are we capable to contain this uh, sense of paranoia that's not just happening in Europe, in U.S., or even this part of the world? Interesting. Thank you. Let's take uh, another one or two. If you have. Yes. Could perhaps uh, the person, the, the panelist from America, um, and Diana, maybe? Um, oh, she's both Diana. Oh, yeah, Diana. Sorry, <laughs> Diana Wong. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, I, I'm just trying to think of, of the election results in Germany, despite the good news and, and you know, the economy being strong, etc., and all that, and, and the results of the elections in the U.S. last year. Could... Is there something to be said about racism and that being the beneath the skin of the crisis that is that you know that the communities or, or, or the, the citizens in these two countries face? And in the U.S., for example, after eight years of a black president, you know, and Black Lives Matter, and the U.S. society not quite addressing the specter that and the impact of slavery on U.S. society. Any other questions, comments? Okay, all right. So two questions. First, on paranoia. Is it going to get worse? Are we at a tipping point? Uh, or maybe this is as bad as it gets? I don't know. I'd mean, like to hear <laughs> your thoughts. And of course, the legacy of racism and slavery in America and how that feeds into the rise of the in, right. In terms of paranoia and crisis and containing it, I think that boils down to individual people or groups of people because there are many people in the world today who are not paranoid, who do not feel that that all this stuff going on is a crisis situation. So it's tricky to answer that because you would really have to put the lens on, I guess, a certain place or a certain group of people or a certain person to say that. But something I have thought about, and these are just my thoughts, I'm not saying that there's not many, many other ways to think about it, just goes back to something about people being, um, I really don't know the words, I'm, gosh, I'm, I'm never one to be lost for words, but anyway, um, about people not being grounded within themselves. It's like, here we go again, back in America, there were actually parents who disowned their children because they voted for Trump. There were marriages that broke up because, you know, somebody voted for Trump. It was even on the news, and this was the most horrifying, was a six-year-old boy, his mother, put him out on the street because in his elementary school they had a mock election and he voted for Trump. And when he went home and told his mother that, and his, uh, his mother literally threw him out of the house. And then, you know, Child Protective Services came and whatever. But it, it makes me step back and say, is the stability of your marriage or your relationship to your son, daughter, whatever, based on who is the president? Where does this ideology come from in the individual? I'm not choosing sides, but, you know, people who voted for Trump didn't put Hillary voters on the street or whatever. 
it was all coming from the other way. And so it, it just makes me question the groundedness of a person who is going to feel in a crisis situation or whatever based on who is the president. So, I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, um, I guess if you're war-torn countries and the refugees and maybe North Korea, communist regimes or whatever, yeah, perhaps those people can feel like they're in crisis mode or whatever. And again, I'm not one on world politics or history or anything like that, so I can't say that I have the answers. But looking at it in developed nations, I've been here for 10 years, or in an American or even a European, North American situation, a lot of people don't feel like they are in crisis or they are in fear. So I guess it really depends on where you want to put, put the lens. I'm not sure that I answered your question, but I don't know. That's how, that's how I thought. And it goes back to self-reliance, groundedness as an individual, and kind of taking care of yourself and looking to be a productive, contributing individual to society at large. And sort of like, what's the proverb? You give a man a fish, he eats for a day. You teach him how to fish, and he eats forever. And then, I'm so sorry, I don't know anybody's name, but the young lady over here, you were saying something about skin color and um, presidency, or I don't know, can you focus that question a little bit more, and I'll maybe I'm try to answer it. Racism being under the skin, yeah. Again, I'm not quite sure. I mean, that question can be viewed and heard in, in many different ways, but if it's coming from, um, okay, we had a black, pre well, I, technically he was only half black, he was a mulatto, but a black president, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, for eight years, I don't think that had anything to do with the fact that Trump won. I think it was agendas. The Americans did not like what became of America after those eight years, generally speaking, and that's why Trump won. It was, again, it was about the promises, the political uh, platforms, I guess you could say. It was the agendas and the platforms was what people voted for and not colors of, of skin. And again, I don't, I don't know if that's exactly what your question is or things about um, black matters or, or slavery. Well, my goodness, slavery ended in 1865. So the African-Americans, or otherwise known as the blacks, who are in America, maybe their great-great-great-great-grandfather was a Crow? slave. Or what, the Jim Crow law? What the Jim Crow law, civil rights. I mean, it, yeah. This, what, Martin Luther King and all of that? Well, I, th I thought those were very good good movements, but I, I don't see where the blacks are discriminated against mass in America. Mass incarceration? Really? I honestly, I honestly don't. In what law? In what? <laughs> oh, I, oh, you want, my grandmother was black, okay? So, um, but... No, it's it's a matter of are you being a productive, contributing citizen? There are many, many, many successful blacks in America who are not being mistreated. There's also a lot of white Americans. We, you know, sometimes they're referred to as white trash, who 
are discriminated against as well. But I, I'm, I don't know, I can't see where it's a skin color thing that somebody's being discriminated against. I'm sorry if they feel that way, but I, I don't, I don't see it, you know. And I, and I am part black, and I grew up being very picked on in the 1960s with my curly frizzy hair. You can't see it because of the black factor. But you know, I don't. I, I, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, maybe we, you know, sort of taking this conversation away from the specificities of the American context. I mean, this is interesting and complicated. And very I believe complicated. it is very complicated. Coming back to the question of paranoia, right? And I, I think because paranoia is about a fear of something, or we assume it's, it's an f- unfounded fear of something. But mm-hmm. it's unfounded from from an outsider's perspective, right? We, the par- person who is paranoid believes this to be true, whether it is an undocumented worker or it's your neighbor or whatever. But you're primed to believe. You're you're in a state of, um, and, and that's the vulnerability. You're in a state where you think that the world is against you, right? Or, or something to that effect, yeah, or you're that's... personally being targeted. So how how does that kind of manifests itself on a collective level and and how do we you know go beyond it i remember a couple of weeks ago we had a discussion on the radio about uh, accepting rohingya refugees into this country and it was very interesting that mm-hmm. people who called in said you know i done some voluntary work with uh, with the rohingya refugees um, I'm a doctor. The one doctor who called in and said, I, I've worked with refugees. They will bring in disease. Uh, the person who worked with school children said that really, these are not people that we want in our country. Uh, we had that kind of expression from the middle Malaysian class, uh, middle class Malaysians who called in, who seem otherwise very reasonable people. I mean, I wouldn't think that, you know, they're not necessarily nasty or horrible people. They're just people who just, who for some reason feel that this country can't afford to do it now. We do not have the resources. Why don't we stick up for Malaysians? There's so many Malaysians who are not doing well. Why do we need to take on extra burdens? Because the truth of the matter is, and when it comes to whether reading newspapers or thick description, it's tiring. It's hard work to understand other people. It's tiring to be generous. It is extraordinary. Can you imagine if you're working and you have a family and you have all that... Where do you find the time and energy? Yeah, you read so many books, Gerald. I don't. Because <laughs> I'm out there slaving for humanity. No, the truth is, it is psychic. There's a kind of, um, um, there's a demand on us as individuals. There's an investment to be made, to be generous, to be open, uh-huh. to uh, accommodate uh, to understand, especially if you're privileged in that sense, right? Having you know, whoever it like is, that. right? We'll see that poor communities can can be as generous. Isn't it? You don't have to be yeah. privileged in order to be generous, Come you on. know. So, but it's still an act that requires us, and we do not recognize this. Then we are also being unfair to the people. Communities that suddenly have a deluge of refugees. And then we say to them, oh, they must be generous. It's very good for us to say they must be generous. <laughs> then you're not the yeah, one who's yeah. having to, to, you know, put That's out. Right. Uh, unfortunately, yeah. I just got signaled for, uh, to wrap up soon. But I, I just want to add to that before giving Diana Wong the last word, that our sense of community is just far more fragmented now, you know, building on what you said earlier, in the sense that either because we're mostly overworked and underpaid or uh, social media is colonizing mm-hmm. the way we interact, 
connective connectivity. Connectivity now even is digitalized, right? We don't think of human connectivity. We think about YouTube buffering slowly or something, right? That's the, the way we think of the word now. But the idea that uh, we can have in the flesh communication seems to be at risk as well. So that makes it just harder for us to tie and mm-hmm. connect the dots. Uh, but uh, before we wrap up, uh, Maybe Professor two, Wong. Yeah. Paranoia, collective paranoia. I think uh, it, paranoia is also generated, collective paranoia, by, by language. And I think it's incumbent on us not just to be generous, but it's incumbent upon us, it's incumbent on us to, be, to resist uh, the misuse of language. Uh-huh. The demonization of the other, and the demonization, and that demonization holds as much for Trump as it does for the migrant. Okay. I think I think that's very important, and uh-huh. especially for 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 the global elite like we. I think it bears. Uh, 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 uh. It, it, it is some. It's difficult to resist the language of the demonization. I find it difficult. Uh-huh. Um, and it's something that I think we, we, we one of the sites of resistance actually yeah. is the use of our language. Um, to Mas's question, so I wouldn't actually start immediately with the term racism, but I think what it does show, like in the case of Germany, uh, where economically uh, everybody seems to be well looked after, although that's not quite true either. I think it goes back to what uh, Ford said earlier in the in, in the in the program, that it would appear as if culture matters as well. For a long time, we just thought we well, especially those of us with uh, sort of with a Marxist training and background, that it was pre- actually essentially the economy that mattered. Mm-hmm. But perhaps, but we seem to be uh, witnessing the fact that culture matters as well. And how to come to terms with that, with cultural difference, acknowledging difference, while yeah, and 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 figure out, figuring out how to deal with it, recognizing the other as an equal, is 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 not easy. We have had so much difficulty with it in Malaysia. I think one of the things we can hope for Malaysia is that we develop a paradigm for the global world, as to how to deal with how how to work yeah. this out. I think, relatively speaking, to a lot of our issues are still manageable, quote-unquote, compared to the, the crises we've been talking about. Um, and let's not forget or discount the basic things we can do, having face-to-face conversations, building close friendships across differences, being curious, all those things still mm-hmm. go a long way, especially in light of uh, the fears we have today. But let's uh, thank everybody. Thank you too, but thank, thank also you. to the panelists for just thinking out loud, sharing the thoughts, speaking very honestly. Uh, hopefully, bubbles will burst today and we get to understand each other more. Sharat Kutin, Diana Lia Baranovic, and Diana Wong. Thank, Thank you. you again. Thank you. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks for coming. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.